One of the best ways to support the FTF podcast is to check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, interviews, and plenty more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast, where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today we are taking it to the apocalypse or the nuclear apocalypse that was a what if scenario in the 50s, you know, Cold War looming. I think that was the 50s. Basically, post, post-World post War, what would happen if we dropped some nukes, but we had all that future tech of the 50s? And of course, we we're talking about Fallout, but not just Fallout, Fallout 3. In the time that it came out, I remember seeing it and kind of just being really excited about the world, the landscape. This came mm-hmm. after Oblivion came out for Bethesda. And it took a lot of those like classic RPG concepts and just kept improving on them in Fallout 3 and even went like as far as to have a few controversial things in there where Mm -hmm. you could get addicted to drugs and alcohol and just trying to delve deeper into as realistic of an RPG as possible in this fictional setting. And not only that, a shooter RPG. You know, we could see a little bit of that with arrows and stuff and the D&D Lord of the Rings-esque, you know, Elder Scrolls series. But now we're getting it in a first person or third person view in an FPS realm. And this really started to change the idea of could you do an RPG that had all of these like modern shooter elements to it? And it proved you could. Absolutely. And This came out at a time where those open-ended kind of games started to really, I think, fall more mainstream, Mm -hmm. where you got to impact the story with these specific text dialogues. You know, you had to have a certain charisma in order to do certain things, and it could have long-lasting impacts within the game. And that's what made Fallout 3 really, really interesting, and I think it's lent itself as an idea for a lot of games going into the future of these kind of split pathways. Not quite to the level, I think, that Fallout 3 and other Bethesda titles have done it, um, but still, I think it's something that's influenced that sort of culture, that sort of gaming genre. Fallout 3 is a 2008 post-apocalyptic action role-playing open-world video game developed by Bethesda Game Studios and published by Bethesda Softworks. The third major installment in the Fallout series, it is the first game to be created by Bethesda since it bought the franchise from Interplay Entertainment. The game marks a major shift in the series by using 3D graphics and real-time combat, replacing the 2D isometric graphics and turn-based combat of previous installments. 
It was released worldwide in October 2008 for Microsoft Windows, PlayStation 3, and Xbox 360. The game is set within a post-apocalyptic open-world environment that encompasses a scaled region consisting of the ruins of Washington, D.C., and much of the countryside to the north and west of it, referred to as the Capital Wasteland. It takes place within Fallout's usual setting of a world that deviated into an alternate timeline thanks to atomic age technology, which eventually led to its devastation by a nuclear apocalypse in the year 2077, referred to as the Great War. Caused by a major international conflict between the United States and China over natural resources and the last remaining supplies of untapped uranium and crude oil. The main story takes place in the year 2277, around 36 years after the events of Fallout 2, of which it is not a direct sequel. Players take control of an inhabitant of Vault 101, one of several underground shelters created before the Great War to protect around 1,000 humans from the nuclear fallout who is forced to venture out into the capital wasteland to find their father after he disappears from the vault under mysterious circumstances. They find themselves seeking to complete their father's work while fighting against the Enclave, the corrupt remnants of the former U.S. government that seeks to use it for its own purposes. Fallout 3 was met with universal acclaim and received a number of Game of the Year awards, praising the game's open-ended gameplay and flexible character-leveling system, and is considered one of the greatest video games ever made. Now, I think a lot of those things are definitely undeniable. Mm -hmm. This game was really, really huge around the time. Tons of Fallout fans um, that I think started with Fallout 3 here. I mean, I remember especially the the Mm Pip-Boy becoming just this very iconic design within um, gaming culture, I guess. There was tons of toys, merchandise that spanned from Fallout 3, and uh, I don't know. I mean, you played this game definitely a lot more than I did. Uh, would you agree with all the, the titles, Game of the Year? The I, I would say so. I, it's one of those games that came at a time where we really had these drab-looking games, grays and browns and black browns and gray grays and like all these other like colors that just span that spectrum. This did bring a little bit of life to it. It definitely had those. Definitely had those grays and tones to it, which were kind of necessary. Again, think that very Cold War-esque idea, but instead of like us ever advancing from the 50s or the idea of it, we took that science and continued on. So I think it's such a cool juxtaposition of this, you know, Pit-Boy and Vault-Boy-esque propaganda of like, live your best life. We love it. It's so good here. And the realization, or again, that juxtaposition to it is that it's a wasteland and you're somehow surviving in this wasteland after these bombs have dropped and how, how do you advance through it with all of these different corrupt things going on, all of these super mutants and these things that occurred because of the fallout. It was such a good story in that way. And not only that, again, it's one of the first real shooter RPGs that stuck that I think some people early on were disappointed with that it wasn't a Fallout 1 or 2. But I think, I think a lot of people got past that and saw it for what it was. It adopted the name, it adopted the setting, but they blazed their own path as to what it was. And so, of course, the minds, I guess, behind this game, you know them from a lot of other titles. I'd say most notably the Elder Scrolls titles, of course, and that's Bethesda. 
And we haven't really talked about a Bethesda game before, so this is going to be a pretty deep dive, I think, into the studio itself. Prior to founding Bethesda Softworks, Christopher Weaver was a technology forecaster and a communications engineer in the television and cable industries. After finishing grad school, he was hired by the American Broadcasting Company, where he wrote several memos about the importance of alternative distribution systems and how satellites and broadband networks would impact network television, which landed him the position of manager of technology forecasting. After multiple national magazines quoted his articles on, quote, the exciting prospects for cable distribution systems, he was recruited by the National Cable Television Association and created its Office of Science and Technology. In that capacity, he helped design high-speed data communication systems for several member companies of the association. Eventually, Weaver became the chief engineer for the United States House Subcommittee on Communications, where he influenced legislation that affected the telephone, television, and cable industries. In the meantime, Weaver had also founded Video Magic Laboratories with a friend from the Architecture Machine Group at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also known as MIT. They had put together a 400-page business plan to commercialize their prior lab work, and through the Industrial Liaison Office at MIT, they came in contact with a wealthy family in the electronics industry that provided Video Magic with venture capital. The company developed several technologies, including location-based entertainment systems that Weaver deemed radical and cutting-edge, but put out prematurely, causing little commercial return. The funding family, having financial issues of its own, dropped out of the venture and sold off some of Video Magic's properties. After leaving the House subcommittee some years later, Weaver established Media Technology Associates Limited in June 1981. The company provided engineering and media consulting for private companies and government organizations. Media Technology had offices in both Maryland and New York. At Media Technology, Weaver worked with Ed Fletcher, an electrical engineer with whom he had collaborated at Video Magic on video games for laserdisc based systems until that industry crashed in 1984. While waiting for potential new contracts, the company acquired an Amiga personal computer with which the two began to experiment. Fletcher was a fan of American football and suggested that they develop a football video game for the system, which Weaver supported despite no interest in the sport. Fletcher developed the game, later named Gridiron, out of Weaver's house in Bethesda, Maryland, in roughly nine months. His initial approach was to use lookup tables to map player inputs to predetermined outcomes. Weaver disliked this concept and he and Fletcher devised a more realistic, physics-based system. No artists or animators were involved in the project, which gave the game a very subpar graphical presentation for the time. Weaver formed Bethesda Softworks, quote, on the proverbial kitchen table of his Bethesda home as a division of media technology on June 28th, 1986. I mean, we're talking about the 80s we're seeing that Bethesda name come up. The formation was described as an experiment, quote, to see if the PC market was a viable place to develop games. Weaver originally named the company Softwork, spelled S-O-F-T-W-E-R-K-E, but found that the name was taken by a company based in Virginia. Weaver and the owner of that company agreed to coexist rather than fight over the title, and Weaver changed the name of his company to Bethesda Softworks. He had considered creating a unique name, such as one using the word magic, after a quote from Arthur C. Clarke, but 
Bethesda Softworks ultimately stuck. Unlike Video Magic, Bethesda Softworks was entirely self-funded, starting with roughly $100,000, and was not attached to any business plan. Gridiron was released as the company's first game later in 1986 for the Amiga, Atari ST, and Commodore 64 systems. The initial release of a few hundred copies distributed in plastic bags was sold out within one week, to the surprise of Bethesda Softworks. Again, this was a game that it didn't really have the graphical interface you needed. It was just some, some tech bros putting this together with no artist to kind of set it up. But them and their little Ziploc bags of deliciousness sold these out. Like it's, it's, it's very much that grassroots video game element of just kind of that door-to-door idea of like, do you just want to buy my thing? And to be honest, I don't know that there was a lot of good football video games or anything like that at the time. I don't mm-hmm. really necessarily know when that became a more mainstream thing. So they definitely had the advantage of the time. If that coming out in 1986, I mean, that's a big time for football. I think football's really been like just constantly growing since the seventies in the United States. But Mm -hmm. you know, in the mid eighties to have a football game playable at home, I think that's really cool and definitely lends itself to their ability to sell that game out, just kind of cornering that market. Oh yeah. And on that topic, early games scored respectably in the gaming press. Electronic Arts was working on the first John Madden football and hired Bethesda to help finish developing it and acquired distribution rights for future versions of Gridiron. So you see, instantly they recognize, hey, there is a a need for a football video game. In June 1988, after no new cross-console version of Gridiron had been released, Bethesda stopped work on the project and sued Electronic Arts for $7.3 U.S. million, claiming EA halted the release while incorporating many of its elements into Madden. The case was resolved out of court. EA, even in the late 80s, screwing everybody over. (laughs) (laughs) And we got a little bit of a fun fact here. Courtney Cox. A little fun fact for you. Later known for her role in the sitcom Friends, worked at the publisher briefly in the 1980s. Hashtag fun fact day. That's exciting. Yeah, I didn't know that. In 1990, the company moved from Bethesda to Rockville, Maryland. By February 1993, the company employed 40 people. The first game Bethesda published and developed based upon a popular film franchise was The Terminator for the MS-DOS. The title was released in July 1991, coinciding with the theatrical release of the film Terminator 2, Judgment Day. In 1994, the company released its best-known project at the time, The Elder Scrolls Arena. The game, the first in the Elder Scrolls role-playing video game series, was the work of programmer Julian Lefay, director and producer Vijay Lakshman, as well as others. Several sequels have been released since. Between 1994 and 1997, Bethesda was developing a space combat game titled The Tenth Planet. It was a collaboration between Bethesda and Roland Emmerich's Centropolis Entertainment. During development, Centropolis chose to stop working on the game due to the company's commitments to its films. The project was never released. Bum, bum, bum. But in 1995, Bethesda Softworks acquired Noctropolis, not Centropolis, developer Flashpoint Productions. We got a lot of polis. We got a lot of polis all around, <laughs> which Brent Erickson had founded in 1992. Under the name Media Tech West, the studio operated from Olympia, Washington, 
with Ericsson as its technical division director. Games produced by MediaTek West include Burnout Championship Drag Racing and X-Car Experimental Racing. In 1997, Bethesda acquired XL TransLab, a Washington, D.C. graphics company that stemmed from the Catholic University School of Architecture and Planning. It was moved to Bethesda Softworks Rockville headquarters, and XL TransLab had previously done work for PBS and Fortune 500 companies. By 1996, the company had become the third biggest player in the privately held PC publishing industry after LucasArts and Interplay Entertainment with 75 employees by that year and revenues of $25 million by 1997. In June and July of 1997, Bethesda announced a partnership with CBS Enterprises to produce the first-ever true companion PC series of games for the television series Pensacola Wings of Gold. By December 1997, the first CD-ROM game was still in production. What a name, Pensacola Wings of Gold. You know, you know it's going to be great with that style of name. Like, that just rolls off the tongue. Every household, yes. Who doesn't love Pensacola? I have absolutely no idea what that game or what that show would be about, but I'm just getting, like, those 90s vibes of the Xena Warrior Princess on, like, WB, that you'd see that just kind of pop up, and it's kind of sketchy looking. And Now, if I'm going off name alone, Pensacola Wings of Gold. I'm going to go Pina Coladas plus Birds plus Miners. And it is an action RPG adventure game where you must take your canary down into the mine to find the hidden stash of Pinas and Coladas. And you mix them together to make a coconutty drink. So I'm just going to correct us both really quick. It was Mm -hmm. an action-adventure drama based at the Naval Air Station Pensacola in Pensacola, Florida. I'm not that far off, (laughs) to be honest. I was very off because I said Xena Warrior Princess, so. But continuing on, for the Elder Scrolls II Daggerfall, Bethesda developed X-Engine. So it's like X-Engine, but it's like X-Engine... It's there. Anyway, it's a 3D game engine, replacing the ray casting engine used for Arena. The engine was used in the Terminator, Future Shock, Terminator, Skynet, Daggerfall, and of course, X-Car Experimental Racing. Of course. In 97 and 98, Bethesda released two Elder Scrolls spinoffs based on Daggerfall's code, Battle Spire and Redguard, neither of which enjoyed the success of Daggerfall and Arena. The downturn in sales was not limited just for the Elder Scrolls franchise, and the company considered filing for bankruptcy as a result. Battlespire and Redguard were actually the last games to use that X engine because it was such a dumb name. (laughs) I'm I'm just going to go on record and probably say that. It's (laughs) definitely got that feel of those 90s things where it's like extreme. You're replacing Mm -hmm. letters with just the the letter X. It's going to fill in all the blanks for you. X-N-G-I-N-E is the way that's spelled for the listeners out there, because you can't see what we see. It makes so much sense. (laughs) In October 1999, Pete Hines joined Bethesda to head up its marketing department, running it as what he described as a one-man band. At the start of his tenure, the company had employed around 15 people in its Rockville headquarters. And as well in 1999, Weaver and Robert A. Altman formed the holding company Xenomax Media. In an interview with Edge, he described the company as being a top-level administrative structure 
rather than a parent company for its holdings, explaining that Xenomax and Bethesda for all intents and purposes are one thing. Bethesda has no accounting department. We have no finance. We have no legal. Our legal department and our financial department is Xenomax. We all operate as one unit. Xenomax acquired media technology in July 1999, and Bethesda Softworks was reorganized as a division of Xenomax. In 2001, Bethesda Game Studios was established, changing Bethesda Softworks to being a publishing brand of Xenomax Media. And in 2002, Weaver stopped being employed by Xenomax. He actually later filed a lawsuit against Xenomax, claiming he was ousted by his new business partners after giving them access to his brand and was owed $1.2 million in severance pay. Xenomax filed counterclaims and moved to dismiss the case, claiming Weaver had gone through emails of other employees to find evidence. This dismissal was later vacated on appeal, and the party settled out of court. Weaver remained a major shareholder in the company. As of 2007, he said that he still owned 33% of Xenomax's stock. Providence Equity bought 25% of Xenomax stock in late 2007 and an additional stake in 2010. And in 2007, the Fallout franchise was acquired by Bethesda Softworks from Interplay Entertainment, and the development of Fallout 3 was handed over to Bethesda Game Studios. Fallout 3 was released on October 28th, 2008. And so there is a lot of that early started up kind of drama that we see mm -hmm. with these companies that start super small, these little passion projects, start in a garage, start in a house, share names with other companies in different states and whatever else that you run into when you're trying to start your own small business. And eventually it just grew too big and start fighting about things and it got a little messy but uh you know they were eventually able to find some agreements and i wanted to include this because i wanted to show one just how wild it is of a ride that this came from a dude who was just this tech officer who is just kind of like yeah you should invest in this you should not do this this is what we should build up to the u.s government standards to like making a side company and to really seeing what like xenomax is i mean a lot of us saw that name potentially for the first time when there was the Microsoft Bethesda merger and people were confused like Zenimax is that the company of it is the parent company what's happening with this so it just goes to show you like how weird corporate structures are also how old this company is I mean we're talking about mid 80s is kind of the summation of it and now here we are today with like so many titles under that belt that the company has then bought from others, that Microsoft has then bought, that has just expanded out. So it's weird to see where we are today with everything, but that's our basis, and that's where we start. And now we're going to take it back real quick and talk about that Interplay game, that game that they were originally developing that was going to be their Fallout 3, and what happened with it. And we're going to be talking about Van Buren. And so Van Buren was the code name given to what would have been Fallout 3 role-playing video game that was being developed by Black Isle Studios before the parent company, Interplay Entertainment, went bankrupt. This resulted in the company shutting down Black Isle, which in turn laid off the PC development team on December 8, 2003, effectively canceling the game. Prior to the development of Van Buren, two attempts to make a new Fallout game were halted by Titus Software in favor of others of Interplay's titles, notably console titles. 
When Interplay lost the rights to make Icewind Dale and Baldur's Gate's video games for the PC, their game Baldur's Gate 3, The Black Hound, in development by Black Isle Studios, was canceled and is actually being revived today. With the cancellation of Baldur's Gate 3, Black Isle Studios' team was immediately transferred to work on Fallout 3, obviously codenamed Van Buren. During this time, Interplay's own team was working on Fallout Brotherhood of Steel. The teams had one meeting together to plan out those games. When many of Black Isle Studios' most talented developers left, the developer Damien Folletto responded by stating it was only the trust within the team and belief that they could finish the game that kept them going. The game was officially canceled when Titus decided to try to improve Interplay's console division. This led to a nearly completed Fallout 3 being canceled. Members of the Black Isle team were then either transferred to the development of Fallout Brotherhood of Steel 2 or Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance 2, of which only the latter was released. Although the complete story of Van Buren was never revealed, several details were divulged prior to its cancellation. The game would have been set in 2253 and the player would start the game as an escaped prisoner. Whether the character was wrongfully imprisoned or guilty was to be determined at character creation. The game would have started in a prison as it was attacked by an unnamed force. An explosion would knock the character unconscious, and the cell door would be open when he awakened. The player would then escape into the wasteland while being pursued by assailants. After leaving, the character would have the power to shape the destiny of the wasteland. Their interactions with organizations such as the Brotherhood of Steel and the burgeoning New Californian Republic, with both of these factions participating in a prolonged war with one another, could bolster or destroy the organizations, influencing people associated with them, and eventually decide the fate of the region, much as in the previous two Fallout games. You know, Alex, that sounds very similar to the beginning of a, a game that most of us have been playing for like over a decade now. A little mm. game called Skyrim. Yes, so and that was kind of the premise that's also taken within Fallout 3 that continues on, that we're actually going to see bits of Van Buren coming back of those two warring factions. You know, who's going to take what and who's right and who's wrong? Very much that, like, order is the way we need to go or freedom is the way we need to go. Very much in that realm. Definitely a very big theme within the Bethesda titles. One of the more significant elements of the plot and backstory of Van Buren was to be an ongoing war between the Brotherhood of Steel and the New California Republic. The player would be able to visit various prominent settlements and fortresses controlled by either of the factions, and their actions there would influence the proceeding of the war. An example of how the player's interactions could alter the flow of the conflict would be in the case of the settlement situated in the area around the Hoover Dam. Here, the player could choose whether or not to aid the settlement and its people in a myriad of tasks, which would lead to this isolated frontier outpost eventually deciding the fate of the war. The game's ultimate plotline was planned so that the events in the beginning of the game would have been part of a scheme by a rogue New California Republic scientist, Dr. Victor Presper, to seize control of a U.S. orbital nuclear weapons platform dubbed BOMB001 and use it to initiate a second nuclear holocaust, cleansing the world of all but his chosen few. In the end, the player would not be able to stop all of the missiles from launching, and their decisions on where the missiles would strike would ultimately have decided the future of the world. Van Buren was to be centered on Utah and Colorado, 
However, a small part of Nevada would also be available. The player would be able to visit places such as Hoover Dam, Denver, Mesa Verde, and the Grand Canyon. Again, I think a game I would have loved to play. And we do see bits of that, not only in Fallout 3, but in Vegas, and even some elements brought into Fallout 4. So, so they're definitely taking these elements that, again, Fallout 1 and 2 started to bring to it, that they're taking into Van Buren slash Fallout 3, again, a game that was nearly finished, that was like, they're putting it on the store shelves. The GameStop employees, it's touching the shelf, it's touching the shelf. Ooh, canceled. Never mind. Back in the box, into the trash. And that's unfortunately how it goes. You know, within companies, we've seen plenty of studios crumble and fall. We've seen plenty of amazing titles just cease to exist, cease to have a sequel. And luckily, Bethesda steps in, and Bethesda goes ahead and buys those rights. So Bethesda Softworks started working on Fallout 3 in July 2004, but principal development did not begin until after the Elder Scrolls 4 Oblivion and its related extras and plugins were completed. Bethesda Softworks made Fallout 3 similar to the previous two games, focusing upon non-linear gameplay, story, and black comedy. Bethesda pursued an ESRB rating of M by including the adult themes, violence, and depravity characteristics of the Fallout series. So, making it creepy and bad, but in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> they did shy away from the self-referential gags of the game's predecessors that broke the illusion that the world of Fallout is real. So they, they had some stuff that would break that fourth wall and kind of talk to the character or make fun of it in ways that a lot of those point-and-click kind of adventures did. At the time, very that self-realization idea. So Fallout 3 uses a version of the same game, Gamebryo, so it's like Embryo, but it's Game Embryo, engine. Uh, again, Bethesda, I hate your engine naming. <laughs> <laughs> but the Gamebryo engine as Oblivion, and was developed by the team responsible for that game. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about this, but I got to bring it up. I got to bring my boy up real quick. Because mm. we'll talk about the voice actors in a bit. But Liam Neeson is your father. Oh. So he plays the voice actor for your Faja. And uh, they actually got a, a pretty star-studded cast through all of the Bethesda games. But we're going to see a few of them coming up later in the episode. I mean, Qui-Gon Jinn is your dad. That's amazing. That's what I'm saying. Now, in He's Fallout, definitely not known for anything else. I'm no, no, just, just Qui-Gon. Just Qui-Gon um, Specifically, that's the name that stuck with him forever. <laughs> and uh, I don't think he's done anything else. Though, the except for best Fallout. Star Wars movie of them all. <laughs> the best. The Phantom Menace. Now, in Phantom February of 2007, Bethesda stated that the game was, quote, a fairly good ways away from release, but that detailed information and previews would be available later in the year. Following a statement made by Pete Hines that the team wanted to make the game, quote, a multiple platform title, the game was announced by Game Informer to be in development for Windows, Xbox 360, and PlayStation 3. According to game director Todd Howard, the original plan was to recreate Washington, D.C. entirely in the game, but it was reconstructed by half, and this was because a full implementation is just too big. Let's just say that. It was, it was too big to do, and that's why they added more of the wastelands and more of like the rural areas. That way, you're not building a full city. And then demolishing Full City. And then it fits kind of within that world anyway a little bit better, I think. And I think there's been a ton of imaginative uh, art forms about mm -hmm. what would the world be like if we did have like this nuclear holocaust, those ideas from 
the Cold War and beyond. What could really happen to the world if, you know, these superpower countries really came to a head and really went at it with each other? And so to have like a full Washington, D.C. in the game, I think really would have minimized those ideas in a way that wasn't necessary. Like having it be sort of a wasteland, I think, is the most realistic outcome for that scenario. During a March 21st, 2008 official Xbox Magazine podcast interview, Todd Howard revealed that the game had expanded to nearly the same scope as Oblivion. There were originally at least 12 versions of the final cutscene, but with further development, this expanded to over 200 possible permutations in the final release, all of which are determined by the actions taken by the player. Bethesda Softworks attended E3 2008 to showcase Fallout 3. The first live demo of the Xbox 360 version of the game was shown and demonstrated by Todd Howard, taking place in downtown Washington, D.C. The demo showcased various weapons, such as the Fat Man Nuclear Catapult, the VAT System, V-A-T-S, and the functions of the Pip-Boy 3000, as well as combat with several enemies. The demo concluded as the player neared the Brotherhood of Steel-controlled Pentagon and was attacked by an Enclave patrol. This kind of goes back to what I was saying, where it's, it's really like within your ability in this game to have a very clear ending. This is something that, you know, the Elder Scrolls games don't really have in the same sense, mm-hmm. where it's like there's plenty of stuff in there to affect certain quests and, and different parts of the world, but it's not really the same as Fallout having these different endings. And this is also where the Fallout games, I think, kind of trailblaze as far as uh, games like we've discussed in the past, like a uh, Telltale series game, sure, where it's they're kind of giving you the feeling that a lot of your choices are going to impact the game very, very greatly, but really there's just a few different outcomes. To have 200 possible different things happen within this game, I mean, that's, that's huge. That takes a lot of effort. It does, and, and it takes a lot of writing, um, which we'll have coming up very soon. Howard confirmed that in addition to thematics about slavery and cannibalism, there would be the presence of splatter scenes and exposition of evident mutilations on enemies with release of giblets. Mm-hmm, a little, little jibby action. A little giblets. We haven't had a giblet conversation in a little while. Some giblets. This is, this is the game for it. The inspiration to include scenes with such explicit violence came from the crash mode of the driving simulator series, Burnout. Instead of cars that disintegrated because of the damage, the idea of applying kinematics on bodies who suffered wounds and mutilations due to ballistic trauma or beatings. So yeah, kind of that splattering of the corpse, and and this is very early on, because we'll see that in most games that are doing this nowadays, where they have that brutality of it. Uh, we'll have kind of that limb separation or like when you get that headshot and just, you know, blows up with it. That's kind of the idea that they led into that to kind of even show the brutality of it. We don't see that per se in a lot of the Elder Scrolls stuff. It's more that high fantasy, less of the goriness, less of just kind of that explosiveness of the bodies. But in Fallout, again, we're talking nuclear holocaust. We're talking just just off the wall stuff. And it adds to it. In Skyrim, the only thing that I can think of is the slow-mo cutting off decapitation move. 
That's the that's, only thing that I can really think of. That's the closest you'll really get in the future titles for them is more of that, but less of the visceral explosions or less of the visceral, like losing your legs and limbs for those type of things. For sure. Not like a Gears of War chainsaw or anything mm-hmm. like that. Exactly. Emil Pagliarulo, a writer formerly at Looking Glass Studios, was commissioned by Bethesda to write the main script of Fallout 3. He also worked in part on the Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion script. Pagliarulo took charge of writing the kind of the essence, the first kind of like hits that we get of Fallout 3, then played by Ron Perlman. And he tried to be inspired by the first words. Basically, it's those first words you get hit with in a movie, in a game, something that starts us off, that gets us going, that gets you involved into it. And he's trying to be inspired by the first ones we're seeing in the Fallout series and trying to make that kind of the go-to point of it. And in 1997, he considered vitally important these words of describing Fallout 3 and what the story would have to tell. To succeed in making the script effective, Pagliarulo had to go in the opposite direction to his previous work on Oblivion, which both for setting and characters represented an extreme Fallout inverse. High fantasy, nice stuff happening, beautiful clothing to death, decay, and fat men. Just fat men all around. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the main model to follow for Pagliarulo was always the first Fallout, which by his own admission had more of the peculiarity of like these dialogues that really fit together rather than Fallout 2, which is kind of just more blear and muddled screenplay written by Chris Avalone, who Pagliarulo would nonetheless describe as a fantastic writer, but not so much on that one. So the writing and the antithesis of the writing was really, I don't know, I'm going to say like he tried to go highbrow with it as a Fallout game. It's, it's well written. And Fallout New Vegas, the start of that, also fantastic. But it's that first interlogue, that first start to it is how do you want the audience to feel with those first few words how do you want that audience to feel and that's really what he focused on again the story as i've said with all of the fallout series i truly enjoy i know it goes back and forth for some people but i think he did it i think he did a really good job for taking it into a whole new studio into basically its own first game but a third game yeah, we you know, we can't really go into every single aspect of the story of the the Fallout games in any regard, but it's like they had to give you a purpose for the decisions that you make and just from the very beginning, you know, setting you up as like this close relationship with your father and giving you a purpose to get out of the vault when that wasn't really a life that you knew outside of the vault, you know, giving you a reason to interact with these other characters and make decisions based on the things that they say to you. Like this game, as far as the colors of the world is not really varied. It's a lot of greens and dim tones because it's an apocalyptic era game, but like the ability to write good characters and make a, an interesting story and to give you purpose. I don't think that can be understated for the fallout games. Mm -mm. Let's talk a little bit about marketing, and let's start with some trailers. A teaser site for the game appeared on May 2nd, 2007, and featured music from the game and concept art, along with the timer that counted down to June 5th, 2007. The artists and developers involved later confirmed that the concept art, commissioned before Oblivion had been released, did not reveal anything from the actual game. 
When the countdown finished, the site hosted the first teaser trailer for the game and unveiled a release date of Fall 2008. On June 5, 2007, Bethesda released the Fallout 3 teaser trailer. The press kit released with the trailer indicated that Ron Perlman would be on board with the project and cited a release date of Fall 2008. The trailer featured the Ink Spots song, I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire, which the previous Fallout developer Black Isle Studios originally intended to license for use in the first Fallout game. The trailer, which was completely done with in-engine assets, closed with Ron Perlman saying his trademark line, which he also spoke in the original Fallout, War. War never changes. The trailer showed a devastated Washington, D.C., evidenced by the partially damaged Washington Monument in the background, as well as the crumbling buildings that surrounded a rubble-choked city thoroughfare. A second trailer was first shown during a Game Trailers TV E3 special on July 12, 2008. The trailer zoomed out from a ruined house in the Washington, D.C. suburbs and provided a wider view of the Capitol's skyline, including the Capitol building and Washington Monument in the distance. On July 14, 2008, an extended version of this trailer was made available, which besides the original content included a vault tech advertisement and actual gameplay. Both versions of the trailer featured the song Dear Hearts and Gentle People, as recorded by Bob Crosby and the Bobcats. We also had a film festival on July 11, 2008. As part of promoting Fallout 3, Bethesda Softworks partnered with American Cinematique and Geek Monthly to sponsor a post-apocalyptic film festival presented by Fallout 3. The festival took place on August 22nd and 23rd at Santa Monica's Aero Theater. Six post-apocalyptic movies were shown which depict life and events that could occur after a world-changing disaster, including Wizards, Damnation Alley, A Boy and His Dog, The Last Man on Earth, The Omega Man, and Twelve Monkeys. We also had a few retail packages or collector's items or pre-order bonuses that you could get. The collector's edition includes the game disc, manual, a bonus making-up disc, a concept art book, and a 5-inch Vault Boy bobblehead, all of which is contained in a Vault Tech lunchbox. In Australia, the collector's edition was available at Game Traders and Rest in Peace EB Games. Oh. The limited edition includes the game disc and manual, as well as the Brotherhood of Steel Power Armor figure. This edition was available only in the UK through the retailer Game. You know what, UK? Let's, we're going to have a separate episode, UK, on how you name your things. I love it, but it's also lazy. Just Game. Imagine walking down the street here in London town, and you just see Game. Like You go in there, what kind of game? What game? Just Guys. Game? Guys, I need to go to Home Store, and I need to go to Hammer, um, and then Wood, <laughs> but let's go to Game first, and then later we go to Pizza. Definitely simplifies the whole process, I guess. It really does. But wrapping up this retail perks, we have the Survival Edition, which includes everything from the Collector's Edition, as well as a model of the Pip-Boy 3000 from the game, which functions as a digital clock. And the Survivor Edition is available on Amazon.com to U.S. customers only. Oh. So little perks kind of all around. But again, this harkens back to that somewhat golden era. We're kind of falling out of it at this point. Of these amazing collector's editions, statues, perks. The Pip-Boy thing was just so, so cool. And I believe we see that in Fallout 4. Might have done that too. Uh, but it's, it's so cool to see these things because it really makes you want to get hyped for the game. 
And it makes you see those things too and question like, oh, this Brotherhood of Steel, has got like this big power armor stuff? Like what is this stuff they got going on? The Pip-Boy, he's a cute little dude, but he's also a psychopath. You got to love it. And so the marketing stuff really sold Fallout 3 from those trailers of like just those panning outs. And they use that very similar style in all their other games. Where like they pan out like from a city bus on a radio out and out and just show that devastation that's all around with these 40s and 50s doo-wops and swing bops playing. Oh, and it just fits so well with that just weird period of time. Nothing like a little doo-wop, woo-wop, bebop to just really uh, get you interested in a game, am I right? Get you jazz, some might say. Oh, wow. That was good. Here again, once again, two episodes in a row. Too quick for me. Oh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it is cool. And Washington, D.C. is obviously as the capital of the United States, the one that it's like, oh, man, something really bad must have had to happen mm-hmm. to have Washington, D.C. look like this, because this is like the home base. This is the most protected asset of the United States, of course. So it's like you use that imagery and it's it really starts to set in, at least for the American audiences. I feel like I could speak for it. I don't know about around the world as much, but you know, you see something like that. It's a little jarring. You're like, Hey, I'm curious now mm-hmm. what did happen. So it does draw you in. I mean, that's exactly it. Like, like again, target American audience for most of everything that happens within the whole fallout series, just based in the United States, but it is, it makes you wonder. And it makes you wonder about the gameplay. And we'll talk about that real quick. I'll give just a quick summary of how fallout, really set itself apart and then the vat system which is one of the biggest inclinations and the biggest inclusions inclination and inclusion in this game obviously the words i didn't mix up of course not the two time the two the two time ends uh is obviously vats if you're an athlete you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down after all a team is only as good as its weakest link So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So let's talk about the gameplay. Obviously, it is a character creation screen, which is actually kind of cool. And we'll talk about that in a bit of the story. You basically start out as a baby. And as a baby, you kind of pick your perks through like this little book. And like it starts your character out as like a kid as you grow up in this vault. And once you eventually escape this vault, again, it's first person or third person. And you will pick those different stats, whether you want to be ranged, melee, lockpick, tech all these other bits that'll get you through this very similar to Elder Scrolls just in this future apocalyptic wasteland. And as you go through, you will improve those marks and you can do different damages with the weapons. So you can hit certain limbs and do disabling, or you can go ahead and just go for more of a center mass to obviously be able to hit what you have. The gameplay continues through. 
you will gain currency, you will buy and sell weapons, and you will continue along the game as you increase these builds. Not only that, one big thing that they did include in this game is companions. So you are able to have companions, again, very similar to the Elder Scrolls series, that will come along with you that will be able to equip certain weapons or items or armors, or you would even have dog meat with you, which is your little puppy friend that you do see in a lot of the promos of like the, the lone wanderer, which is what you're known as, walking the distance with his dog. Rest so, in peace, dog meat. Rest in peace. So very, very similar to a lot of other shooters in terms of pew, pew, bang, bang, but taking everything that they kind of built with oblivion and applying it in this world. And I'm going to have Derek take over for the VATS because I want to go in detail about that because that's what sets us apart from your typical first-person shooter, third-person over-the-shoulder shooter, and what happens. Yeah, this is a really interesting element of the gameplay. The Vault Tech Assisted Targeting System, or VATS, is a new element in the Fallout series and plays an important part in combat within Fallout 3. The system was introduced by Bethesda's developers who described it as a hybrid between time-turn-based and real-time combat. So much in that while using VATS, real-time combat is paused, and action is played out from varying camera angles in a computer graphics version of bullet time. Using the system costs action points, and the amount of which depends on which weapon you're using, and it limits the actions that you could take basically during these turns. Through the system, the player can switch between multiple targets, if there is more than one around at the time, and also target specific areas of them to inflict damage. A player could either target the head for a quick kill, go for the legs to slow an enemy's movements, or shoot at their weapons to disarm them. And for some enemies, they can put them into a berserker rage by hitting a specific part. The chance of striking a different area displayed as a percentage ratio is dependent on the weapon being used and the distance between the character and the target. A character who is a higher level when using bats is also more likely to hit an enemy with the system than a lower level character. The use of VATS does confer a negative effect in that it eliminates most of the first-person shooter elements of the game, like aiming is taken over by a computer, things that you might like to do on your own, and the player is unable to move as a means of avoiding attacks. Furthermore, ranged weapons are capable of hitting limbs, while melee weapons focus on the target and hole when using VATS. And so I remember, like... For instance, if you're fighting some people who are far away, you have a sniper rifle on you, you can go and use this gameplay mode to try and hit that target with the percentage. But let's say like someone sneaks around behind you, then you're at risk of getting hit by that person because things aren't totally stopped, right? Things are still moving just a little bit. Yeah, it's it's very super hot in that element of pausing the gameplay, selecting it, but while you're firing and doing those things, you may have a melee attacker on you that's going to town on you, or you may have someone with a machine gun just laying into you as they puzzle why you are pausing in the middle of a match to, like, <laughs> squint your eye and see what you're doing. But it adds those elements. It adds that very XCOM-esque element of percent chance of hit, and when it does hit, oh, it's so sweet. But when it oh, doesn't, it especially... Oh, gets giblets all over. But when it misses... When you have like that 87% chance of that headshot and it goes wide by six miles, you just go, game, why, game, why? <laughs> and especially like those are the moments where it's almost a little bit tempting to just reload from the last checkpoint because mm -hmm. when you're using this, 
at least typically when I did, it was like there are far too many people around me. I need to take out like a few real fast. Sure. And so when you do have that high percentage chance and it still happens to miss and then you run out of the action points, it's like, oh, man, well, this is going to suck now. I'm probably going to die here. Yep. Because especially when you're playing a really hard difficulty, you do need that bit of a mix with VATS and real gameplay. Because VATS will allow you to slow down, do those shots, use those action points to take out some of even those weaker targets that may be just carrying a pistol or carrying a bat or, or whatever they have that'll do those points of damage that are those death points. That are those points of damage that you shouldn't take. So you can use VATS to take them out quickly while you regroup to take out, let's say, like, uh, one of the giant robots or a super mutant or like a death claw, you know, something out there that's like a bigger target that you need to take care of. And that you actually jumping around and moving behind cover and running actually helps a bit more than standing there and fighting. Right. Absolutely. And you say it's most useful in the higher difficulties. Someone who's terrible at this game. Uh, it was, it was helpful for me. That Sorry, let bad. me redact that. It is really good at <laughs> difficulty. <laughs> no, it's, it's good throughout it. it. It's one of those things where if you do high-level gameplay and you don't do exploits, it's very nice, but most of the time you'll just exploit these games because Bethesda, you can't spell Bethesda without a game that is very broken but also fun to play, but you can destroy in two seconds. Exactly. I'm not going to take the time to figure out that acronym. <laughs> exactly. But, uh... <laughs> but let's jump over. Let's talk about the setting. So we'll talk about the setting first. And then we'll talk about the story. So we've already glanced at the setting a bit, but let's jump into it a little bit more. And then I'll have Derek start to take over the story and then why you're here and why your dad is Qui-Gon Jinn. So Fallout 3 takes place in the year 2277 and within the region that covers most of the ruined city of Washington, D.C., North Virginia, and parts of Maryland, but mostly Montgomery County. The game's scaled landscape includes war-ravaged variants of numerous real-life landmarks, such as the White House, the Jefferson and Lincoln Memorials, Arlington National Cemetery, and the Washington Monument, with a small number of settlements dotted around the capital wasteland that consist of residents and descendants of survivors from the Great War, including one that surrounds with an unexploded bomb, another consisting primarily of ghoul inhabitants, and another formed within the hulking remains of an aircraft carrier. While the city can be explored, much of the interior zones are cut off by giant rubble over many of the roads leading in, meaning that access can only be achieved by using the city's former underground metro tunnels, which was loosely based on the Washington metro, but put into the game to make it traversable, basically. That's kind of where you're, you're, you're ending up, is access to those metro tunnels to get not a quick way to get there, but it's an underground way of dealing with ghouls, but it's a straight shot. The region has two major factions within it, the Enclave and the Brotherhood of Steel. While the Enclave is similar in goal to their Western brethren, the Eastern branch of the Brotherhood of Steel seeks to assist the people of the Wasteland, although a small group is rejected and becomes outcasts who seek to resume their original goal of salvaging high-level technology. Other factions include former slaves who seek to inspire others for freedom by restoring the Lincoln Memorial, a group that feasts on blood, and a group who tend and care for a region of the waste where plants have become abundant. So all over the place, you're yes. seeing so, so just, society uh, just try and rebuild itself. Mm-hmm, just a bit of everything. And again, really good for storytelling. If you can get just little dots and pockets of just all these different bits. 
So let's hop into that story. Let's talk about Qui-Gon Jinn, the Force, the Jedi, all the above. Of course, none of that exists in that game. I just want to talk about it. And the Lone Wanderer, a.k.a. Qui-Gon Jr. Oh, I like that. I didn't think the Jedis could have children. Oh, oh, but you'd be (laughs) wrong. (laughs) I I have put that into the ground. Okay. For the first 19 years of their life, from 2258 to 2277, the player character grows up within the isolated confines of Vault 101, which is designed to never be opened as a social experiment by the pre-war corporation known as Vault-Tec. Alongside their father, James, a doctor and scientist who assists in the Vault's clinic. While growing up, their father comments about their deceased mother, Catherine, and her favorite passage from the Bible, which is Revelation 21.6, which speaks of the waters of life. Upon reaching their 19th birthday, chaos erupts when James suddenly leaves the Vault, causing the overseer to lock down the Vault and send security guards after James' child. Escaping from the vault with the aid of the overseer's daughter, Amada, the search for James across the wasteland begins at the nearby town of Megaton, known for its undetonated atomic bond at the center of town, and eventually into the ruins of Washington, D.C. and the Galaxy News radio station, whereupon James' child, after helping the station's enthusiastic DJ Three Dog, is given the moniker of the Lone Wanderer. Directed by Three Dog towards Rivet City, a derelict aircraft carrier serving as a fortified human settlement, the Lone Wanderer meets with Dr. Madison Lee, a scientist who worked alongside James. Lee informs the Lone Wanderer that their parents were not born in Vault 101 but lived outside of it, where they worked together upon a plan they conceived to purify all the water in the tidal basin and eventually the entire Potomac River, with a giant water purifier built in the Jefferson Memorial called Project Purity. However, constant delays in Catherine's death during childbirth forced James to abandon the project and seek refuge in Vault 101, where he took the lone wanderer to raise within a safe environment far away from the dangers of the wasteland. Learning that James seeks to revive the project and continue his work by acquiring a Garden of Eden creation kit, or a GEC, a powerful piece of technology issued by Vault Tech, intended to assist in rebuilding civilization after the war, the Lone Wanderer tracks him down to Vault 112 and frees him from a virtual reality program being run by the Vault's sadistic overseer, Dr. Stanislaus Braun, whom James had sought out for information on a Gek. Reunited with his father, the pair return to Rivet City and recruit Lee and the other project members to resume work at the Jefferson Memorial. As they begin testing the project, the memorial is invaded by the Enclave, a powerful military organization formed from the remnants of the United States government, which continues to remain active despite the demise of their brethren on the West Coast 30 years previously. Seeking to stop them from gaining control of his work, James urges the Lone Wanderer to finish his project and find a Gek, before flooding the project's control room with massive amounts of radiation, preventing the Enclave's military leader, Colonel Augustus Autumn, from taking control of it and killing him in the process so so unfortunately james kind of sacrifices himself to say like listen son it's your job to do this now i'll stop them but you guys gotta go and unfortunately autumn survives and the rest of the team flees from the remaining enclave soldiers the lone wanderer accompanied by the remaining project purity members make contact with the brotherhood of steel within the ruins of the pentagon 
now known as the Citadel. With their help, the Lone Wanderer travels to Vault 87 to find a Gek, which has been used as a testing site for the Forced Evolutionary Virus, or FEV, and now is a breeding ground for the Super Mutants. The Lone Wanderer recovers the Gek from within the vault with the optional help of a friendly Super Mutant named Fox. Fox, top dog right there. <laughs> as they make their way out, the Wanderer is ambushed by Colonel Autumn and the Enclave and is captured with the Gek confiscated. At the Enclave base at Raven Rock, the Lone Wanderer is freed from their cell by the Enclave leader, President John Henry Eden, who requests a private audience with them. But Colonel Autumn defies Eden's orders, takes command of the Enclave's military, and orders the Lone Wanderer to be shot on sight. Despite the setback, the Wanderer meets with Eden, who is revealed to be a sentient Zack series supercomputer that took control of the Enclave after President Dick Richardson was killed on the West Coast. Seeking to repeat Richardson's plans, Eden reveals his intentions of using Project Purity to infect the water with a modified strain of FEV that will make it toxic to any mutated life, thus killing off most life in the wasteland, including humans. The Enclave, who would be immune to the effects because of their genetic purity as a result of their isolation, would be free to take control of the area. Forced to take a sample of the new FEV, the Wanderer leaves the base, regardless of doing so peacefully or convincing Eden to self-destruct. Returning to the Citadel, where news of the Enclave's possession of the Gek is known to the Brotherhood, the Lone Wanderer joins them in a desperate final assault on the Jefferson Memorial, which is spearheaded through the use of a giant pre-war military robot named Liberty Prime. After reaching the control room, the player has the choice to either convince Autumn to leave or kill him. Lee informs the Wanderer that the purifier is ready for activation, but that the code must be inputted manually within the control room, meaning whoever goes in will be subjected to lethal amounts of radiation. To make matters worse, the purifier has been damaged and will self-destruct if not activated. Now, at this point, the Lone Wanderer can either do nothing and let the purifier explode, destroying the Jefferson Memorial and killing everyone inside the process, sacrifice themselves and input the right code that is hinted throughout the game, or send Sarah Lyons into the chamber and give her the right code. Bye, Sarah. Bye, Sarah. <laughs> Except for the first choice. The Lone Wanderer has the choice of introducing the modified FEV into the purifier or not, which further affects the ending. Whatever the choice, a bright light enshrouds all, and an ending slideshow begins including any actions they took that had an influence on the wasteland. So if you kind of chose, especially like in the town with like the atom bomb, you had the choice to detonate it, let them be. So it kind of goes through all of these choices that you made throughout it. Now, there was an additional ending that was added with DLC. Although the main story ends here, the introduction of the Broken Steel DLC creates a new choice with the ending in that the Lone Wanderer can send one of their radiation-immune companions, preferably our boy Fox, into the chamber to input the code. Furthermore, the game remains open-ended from this point onwards, with the Wanderer surviving the radiation they were subjected to. The Wanderer wakes up two weeks later to the news that the purifier is working well and supplying clean water to the people of the wasteland. However, if the player decides to infect the water purifier with the modified FEV, then adverse effects can be seen across the capital wasteland. The player's choice will also influence Sarah Lyon's fate. 
Sarah Lyons does not survive if sent into the chamber in the broken steel ending. So I think that's amazing that a game, and this is really where DLCs shined. I think mid-2000s into the late 2000s was where DLCs really had a lot to offer. And having the broken steel being like, hey, remember that ending? Do you want to just continue playing, but also like change what you want to do with it? That's huge. Yeah, replayability is really important, I think, in, in games like this. It really stinks, I think, when you get to the end of an RPG and it's just kind of there and done and over. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking back to like, uh, if you ever played Paper Mario, there's tons of games like this, but I'm just going to throw out Paper Mario. You get to the end fight, you fight Bowser, like that's the end of the game. And the only place that you load from that point on is to go and fight Bowser. Yep. You know, to get to an ending like this, where it's like you, you make that decision and then the game's just kind of over after all this work you've done. Sometimes, even though it can be satisfactory and, you know, good, and if you, especially if you get a very good ending, you're happy with that. But to be able to go back and, and play through some stuff again or explore some other things is, I think, a really important addition to this game for sure. Well, especially when you've been modifying your character, you've been getting to know all these people and it, and it just wraps which is fine for story-based things, but I want to see the rest of the vaults. I want to see the crazy experiments that happened in all these. I didn't find them all yet. And so adding that in, especially when you're adding DLC and it's like, um, but wait, don't end the game yet. You got to do some DLC. It makes sense that they went, ooh, okay, let's, let's keep it rolling. I mean, and I just want to go back a little bit. I forgot that they had this robot named Liberty Prime. That's like Liberty Prime, baby. The coolest. And it shouldn't be cool at all because obviously just a rip off of Optimus Prime, but you make it America, baby. Oh, yeah. And when you basically have Uncle Sam like trouncing in on this sick robot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we all want that, honestly. Yeah. So on that topic, let's talk a little bit more about the DLC. Bethesda's Todd Howard confirmed during E3 2008 that downloadable content would be prepared for the Xbox 360 and Windows versions of Fallout 3. There are five DLCs, Operation Anchorage, The Pit, Broken Steel, as we discussed, Point Lookout, and Mothership Zeta, released in that order. Of the five, Broken Steel has the largest effect on the game, altering the ending and allowing the player to continue, as we have said. Originally, there was no downloadable content announced for the PlayStation 3 version of the game. Although Bethesda had not offered an explanation as to why the content was not released for PS3, Lazard Capital Markets analyst Colin Sebastian speculated that it may have been the result of a money deal with Bethesda by Sony's competitor, Microsoft. When asked if the PS3 version would receive an update that would enable gameplay beyond the main quest completion, Todd Howard responded, not at this time, no. In May 2009, Bethesda announced that the existing DLC packs, which up to that point were Operation Anchorage, The Pit, and Broken Steel, that they would be made available for the PlayStation 3. The latter two, Point Lookout and Mothership Zeta, were released for all platforms. On October 1st, 2009, a new Xbox Experience premium theme for the game was released for the Xbox 360. Consumers could pay 240 Microsoft points or by having downloaded all other downloadable content. The PlayStation 3 received a free theme featuring a Brotherhood of Steel Knight in the background and includes symbols from the game as icons on the PS3 home menu. In December 2008, the editor known as The Gek 
or the Garden of Eden Creation Kit, was made available for the Windows version of the game as a free download from the Fallout 3 website. So they definitely put a lot into this and a lot of those DLCs. Again, these DLCs, if you have not played Fallout 3, first of all, get to it. Second of all, play the DLCs. I almost had more fun with those than I did the actual game. Like Even like Mothership Zeta, which is a whole like alien-based one. Uh, which is wild and just like that weird time of just like throw crazy stuff into your game. Like it just worked so well for this style of gameplay and that futuristic sci-fi-ness of basically the 1950s encapsulated in the future with all that like nuclear technology. It works so well. Now let's chat about one of, I think the most memorable bits from the Fallout series and that's 100% the music. We do have some original scores in here, but a lot of it is those 40s and 50s amazing sounds that actually topped the charts at those times. Like when you were looking back at iTunes and all these other things, those songs were being purchased because of this game. So the Fallout 3 original game soundtrack was composed by Inan Zur, although he does not consider himself the only person responsible for the musical work on the game. Game director Todd Howard and sound designer Mark Lambert have been cited by Zur for helping him to manage the in-game sound implementation, stating that only 50% of the music is Zur's alone. When it came to creating the game's musical palette, Zur wanted to give Fallout 3 an, quote, ambient and weird decadence, plus an almost lo-fi sound, but also bring up some more dramatic orchestral elements when needed. Without making the music seem too loopy, Zur's ultimate goal was to make the music sound seamless and interactive, in response to the player's action. Apart from a few live-recorded orchestral exceptions, a majority of the music was composed using a sampler. Inspired by composer Jerry Goldsmith, Zur sought to employ different and odd techniques on orchestral instruments, quote, making it not sound exactly like a traditional orchestra, but still retain the power of one. Overall, the game's musical conception focuses mainly around the player's psychological level within an environment rather than listening enjoyment. This resulted in most of the tracks being either short orchestral cues, chaotic white noise, or ambience. Despite much of the music being experimental and hard-pressed for psychological manipulation, the entire process of creating this soundtrack only took six months. Fallout 3 soundtrack also includes a high amount of licensed music, most of which can be heard on the in-game radio station Galaxy News Radio. Continuing the series' convention of featuring sentimental music from 1940s American big band swing era. The radio features famous artists such as Roy Brown, Billy Holiday, Billy Munn, The Ink Spots, Cole Porter, and Bob Crosby. Other musical works by John Philip Sousa, Johann Sebastian Bach, Antonin Dvorak, and Samuel A. Ward can also be heard in spots of the game. Now, the Fallout 3 original game soundtrack was released on January 31st, 2013, on iTunes through Bethesda's recording company, Bethesda Softworks. It contained 29 tracks for a total of an even 87 minutes, but does not include any of the licensed music heard within the game. During the pre-ordering stage of Fallout 3, a five-song CD was made available containing three licensed songs, as well as two tracks by Zur. Now, on top of that, we've had, I think, roughly three or four, maybe, different releases of the Fallout soundtrack on vinyl with different pressings. There's a green one. There's your traditional just black one. And then there's also ones that have, you know, the Pip-Boy, 
what I like to call the Fallout Boy, apparently, but is uh, definitely just the Vault Boy. Uh, but Sugar, but we're going down. Other other iterations that came about with it that do feature all that licensed music for the game that they made, not actually the licensed music that they licensed. So they made licensed, not licensed out. It's confusing. Go find it and buy one for me, please. Thank you very much. And as we talked about before, many notable actors of film and video games would lend their voices to Fallout 3, including Qui-Gon Jinn, a.k.a. Liam Neeson, as James, Ron Perlman as the game's narrator, Malcolm McDowell as President John Henry Eden, Craig Sheckler as Butch Deloria, Eric Todd Dellums as Three Dog, and Odette Yestman as Amada Almadorvar. Veteran voice actors D. Bradley Baker, my cousin, Wes Johnson, <laughs> yeah, D. Bradley Baker, aka that's Derek Bradley Baker, some might say, Wes Johnson, Paul Eating, and Stephen Russell also provided voiceovers for the game. So some cool big names, and this is where, like, th- I mean, this is the time period where video games are s- sort of transforming into these big cinematic pieces. So. Yep. It makes sense to start getting like some real big names in there, especially if you're trying to reinvent a series like you know Bethesda was with Fallout. So to get a big name on there like a Liam Neeson, to get Ron Perlman, to get all these other professional actors and actresses in this game, I think really shows how much they wanted to invest within this series. And Try and do something unique. And we see it a lot. We, I mean, we're starting to see not only like voice actors for cartoons or animation, it's bleeding into here. And we see that in so many other games coming up, especially like The Last of Us, where we see Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson in there. My cousin. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> all, of, all of Derek's cousins in all of these games. Um, but we see so much more involvement with these people that are their household names now that you and I know that are taking over these voice roles that are recognizable. And so to get like big name actors in this, as well as voiceover actors that are already in the industry is a huge step to where we see video games go over, you know, the next 13 years where we are today. And I like where this is a lot because there was all that talk around the same time. And I think that a little bit of of it probably burned from this where it was like we have the mm-hmm. professional actors within the games could these games be put on the silver screen with some big actors as well and i like that we've pretty well limited that i think that being able to to bring those actors over into these games um helps that medium i don't know that it would work in the reverse but and 13 years ago it didn't work. I'll say that like with gaming movies, it really did in the mid 2000s. And that's what they were trying. They were saying, we're already writing these grandiose scripts. Why should we just keep this for home entertainment? Why not cash in? And people tried. Um, I mean, most notably, the best uh, gaming movie to come out is the Super Mario Brothers movie. Um, but outside of that, we really saw no success until the next Super Mario Brothers movie coming out later with some Chris Pratt action. Those are the two video game movies that are. I would say godlike, uh, you know, it, to, to put it lightly. But <laughs> we do see... <laughs> to put it lightly. To put it lightly, just godlike. But we do see a lot more titles in the 2020s that are coming. Most of them are, have seeing, been in development hell for so long now, so it's... Mm-hmm. But it's this weird, like, like, 
It's the, the Hoover Dam of Van Buren, and it's going to determine the outcome of all of these movies. We did get like Detective Pikachu, which was weird and, and worked. For some reason, that worked. But we're now seeing all these major titles of Halo, Portal, Last of Us, Uncharted, that are receiving their own movies or shows that, one, we know is a cash grab, but two, we have vfx budgets and vfx quality that's coming and we saw what marvel did everyone saw what marvel did and i think this is the chance to be the marvel yeah it's definitely going to be interesting for sure i do think that they have a better shot now than they did in the past i kind of forgot uncharted was doing that i forgot it was going to be tom holland see marvel i told you <laughs> it's bleeding everywhere You're not wrong so speaking of success Let's talk about the general reception for Fallout 3. It was praised for its open-ended gameplay and the freedom the character leveling system granted to the player. Now, if you're anything like me, there is no freedom. You're playing as a tank, Tony Montana, top of the staircase. <laughs> you're just going for it all. Uh, you're coked out, running around the, the landscape. It's it's Derek in every battle, no matter if it's a Brahmin or if it's just like a super mute. He just goes, say hello to my little friend and just unloads the entire clip of ammunition. That's, he has. that's the only way to play an RPG. If you know that were yeah. an option in Skyrim, that would be me. Yeah. The VAT system was also praised for being a fun mechanic to mess around with. The setting invited comparisons to Bioshock which has one of the most memorable and unique settings in a video game. So the comparison, you know, that's, that's some high praise for sure. Yeah, very, very much alternate reality, very much Marvel what if. Oh, yeah. You know, very much along that line of like what would happen in these dystopias that were trying to be utopia. Absolutely. It outsold all previous Fallout titles within a week and shipped 4.7 million units by November of 2008, grossing $300 million. It also won several awards, such as IGN's 2007 Game of the Year and GameSpot's 2007 Best RPG of E3 2007. Not all fans were happy with the direction of the Fallout series um, after its acquisition by Bethesda Softworks, and that's to be expected when you make a big change like this. Notorious for their support of the series' first two games, Fallout and Fallout 2, Members centered on one of the oldest Fallout fan sites, No Mutants Allowed, have criticized departures from the original game's stories, gameplay mechanics, and setting. Criticisms include the prevalence of unspoiled food after 200 years, the survival of wood-framed dwellings following a nuclear blast, and the ubiquity of super mutants at early levels in the game. Vince D. Weller, a longtime No Mutants Allowed member and lead developer of The Age of Decadence, complained, quote, it's not a Fallout game. It's not even a game inspired by Fallout, as I had hoped. It's a game that contains a loose assortment of familiar Fallout concepts and names, like electricity, pre-war electronic equipment, powered and still working computers, and in parentheses, just think about that for a second, working cola and snack machines, weapons, ammo, scrap metal, which is needed by many, and even unlooted first aid boxes that are everywhere. 
I can get that complaint, especially basing off those first two, where you kind of have to scavenge quadrants and see what you can find. And it does. I mean, those complaints do make sense. For, like, you coming out of this vault, technically years and years after this war and fallout, for the most part, is kind of, like, settled, except for certain areas. Yeah, why are there these snack machines that still operate? Why is there scrap metal everywhere that people should be using for dwellings or machinery or melting down? I get it, but... um. To counterpoint, it's a game. You have to suspend realism when you play a lot of video games. I mean, that's just yeah. how video games work. And so, I mean, you're not playing a simulator, right? Like, mm-hmm. you're not playing a simulated barren landscape game. I, I can't imagine that that game would be super fun. Of course, it draws inspiration from real life, but at the end of the day, it's just like a an idea you know it's it's not meant to be a factual game in any sense no i mean it's 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 a what if game and and what if those things were still powered on and you have to you have to factor in like you said it's not this game that's more of an rts exploration chatting kind of almost text-based to a point game it's so much more of an fps that is an rpg i mean does does oblivion really need that many sweet rolls around i don't oh no but but it's fun to have those things in there and it's fun to have those explorations you need to have for you know the derek and i pack rats of the gaming universe you need to be able to hoard oh man that's my response to it where's my hoarding oh man bethesda games you get me every time it's like i see all these sweet rolls everywhere oh i could sell that for a gold let me pick up this entire plate real quick <laughs> Ooh, that that uh iron armor worth 16 i'm going to be rich i'm over encumbered no i'll walk for three hours it's all good i yeah. need that money white runs right over there i'll yeah yeah i can make it dragon comes down out of the sky <laughs> it's okay it's okay i'll kill this dragon while over encumbered and then take all the dragon stuff too it'd be perfect now you brought up sweet rolls and i'm thinking now are there any fat people in the oblivion and skyrim games i don't think there are that's why there's so many sweet rolls laying around because no one's eating them you know what that's true it's it's kind of like the uh fruit and stuff you have at open houses that's it's just there for decoration maybe the sweet rolls aren't even sweet it's true who would know i'm thinking about that a lot but, now <laughs> as you ponder that also criticized are the quality of the game's writing it's relative lack of reality being real Again, it's a game based on a what if. The switch to a first-person action game format and the level of reactiveness of the surrounding game world to player actions. In response, Jim Sterling of Destructoid has called fan groups like No Mutants Allowed, quote, selfish and arrogant, stating that a new audience deserves a chance to play a Fallout game. Luke Winky of Kotaku tempers these sentiments, saying that it is a matter of ownership and that in the case of Fallout 3, Hardcore fans of the original series witnessed their favorite games becoming transformed into something else. I have no remorse for them. Again, it's an update. You can't have that same top-down-esque game be a AAA title. There are plenty of indies that do it really well. They do the Fallout-esque, the Cyberpunk, the the Shadowrun, the Shadowrun-esque elements of it really well. But that works for a smaller studio with a smaller budget that can make those 1997 games today. You need something that Bethesda can make and sell. There's no way that sells 300 million. For sure. And you kind of lose either way, right? Like you keep the old games, the old style, and you have this dedicated fan base who maybe gets tired 
of playing the same game over and over. That that could have been the complaint. I'm tired of them just rehashing the same old thing. I mean, we see that with games today. Think of the Assassin's Creed mm-hmm. series. People don't like when games just kind of get pumped out with that exact same gameplay style. They want changes. They want updates. And so not only did you get the updates and changes that were maybe maybe just taking things a little bit farther than Fallout 1 and 2 did, but not only did you get that, you got this entire new audience to come to the Fallout series and maybe go back and explore yep. Fallout 1, Fallout 2, and play those games and see you know what they really like. I think that you're just inviting fans to the series as a whole, and I absolutely agree that you know, Bethesda should have made this move. Now, let's talk about a bit more controversy. And this is more of a release by region, by country. And so on July 4th, 2008, Fallout 3 was refused classification by the Australian Classification Board, the ACB, in Australia, thus making it illegal to distribute or purchase the game in the country. For the game to be reclassified, the offending content in the Australian version of the game had to be removed by Bethesda Softworks and the game resubmitted to the ACB. According to the ACB board, the game was refused classification due to the realistic visual representations of drugs and their delivery method, bringing the science fiction drugs in line with real world drugs. Again, 2008 a weird time where games were just getting banned left, right, and center in like all these other countries and an interesting take on it. I've met uh, quite a few Australians and those guys are amazing partiers. So, I mean, if you did this to try and prevent those guys from partying it up, you failed, ACB. I'm sorry. Derek, in the wise words of Marshall Mathers slash Eminem, the ACB just won't let me be, <laughs> won't let me be me. Now, can't you see? <laughs> so a revised version of the game was resubmitted to the ACB and reclassified as mature 15 plus on August 7th, 2008, or not suitable for people under the age of 15, unless accompanied by a parent or adult guardian. This new rating ensured that the game could retail legally in Australia. According to the ACB board report, the drug content was not removed entirely from the revised version of the game, but the animation showing the actual usage of the drugs was removed. The minority view on the decision stated that the drug content was still enough to warrant a refused classification rating. In a later interview with UK gaming magazine Edge, Bethesda Softworks revealed that there would be only one version of Fallout 3 released worldwide, and that this version would have all real-world drug references removed. It was later clarified that the only change made would be that morphine, a real-world drug that would have appeared in the game, would instead be renamed to the more generic MedX. On October 22, 2008, Microsoft announced that the game would not be released in India on the Xbox 360 platform. Religious and cultural sentiments were cited as the reason. The statement read that, Microsoft constantly endeavors to bring the best games to Indian consumers in sync with their international release. However, in light of cultural sensitivities in India, we have made the business decision to not bring Fallout 3 into the country. Although the specific reason was not revealed in public, it is possible that it is because the game contains two-headed mutated cows called Brahmin, or that Brahmin is also the name of an ancient powerful hereditary caste of Hindu priests. 
and religious scholars in India, or its similarity to the spelling of Brahmin, a type of cow that originated in India. Brahmin, a breed of zebu, are revered by Hindus. And it's obviously taken to that point. Oh, spelled yeah. a little differently, but that's definitely what it is, is taking kind of that Indian word for it and adding in this kind of mystique element to it. But I, my guess is Google things for cows and Brahmin came up. They go, boom, that's it. We're not going to call them mutant cows. They'll be Brahmin. I don't know why they wouldn't just say cow, but little 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 muty moo. Yeah. Oh, muty moo. Oh, that's a great name. Moo would have been good. Oh, okay. Never mind. Fallout Five, muty moo. Bethesda Softworks changed the side quest, the power of the atom, in the Japanese version of Fallout Three to relieve concerns about depictions of atomic detonation in inhabited areas, as the memory of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki remains strong in the country. In non-Japanese versions, players are given the option to either defuse, ignore, or detonate the dormant atomic bomb in the town of Megaton. In the Japanese version, the character of Mr. Burke is absent, making it impossible to choose the detonation option. Also in the Japanese release, the Fat Man nuclear catapult weapon was renamed Nuka Launcher, as the original name was a reference to Fat Man, the bomb used on Nagasaki. According to Tetsu Takahashi, responsible for localizing Fallout 3 to Japan under his company Zenimax Asia, the available actions prior to localizing the power of the atom and the ability to kill civilians almost got the game banned by Ciro before it received an adult-only rating. So we see, especially in those mid-2000s, again, not that many years ago in reality, that much of this was taken under concern. And Derek, we've talked about this in many episodes, just the interesting things that have to go into a localization. Not only the translation and the localization of foods, you know, very much the infamous, you know, WB4 kids Pokemon making it donuts and sandwiches instead of sushi and rice cakes, things like that. You take it into concern just religiously, culturally, what's happened in regions and have to adapt with it. And this is one where... So very necessary. I mean, absolutely Mm -hmm. was the respectful and correct thing to do. You know, the um, Australian version, uh, them censoring out the drug use and things, I can understand the hesitancy at least a little bit behind something like that. But it goes back to those same arguments of, you know, reality and what it has uh, affected in it by video games. You know, the whole Grand Theft Auto debate. Things like yep. that, where there's an overstep. This one, localizing it appropriately, absolutely the correct decision. And it worked. Again, as we've said, this game has done tremendous, has spawned off sequels, spawned off Fallout 76, uh, which was a debacle at start. Apparently, it's pretty decent now, but you know, an MMO off of this, and it's done it. And Fallout 3 is obviously not the first Fallout game, but it was the first to get that first person shooter genre and make it its own. It is highly regarded as one of the best games in the series by both fans and critics alike, and without this game, who knows where we would have been without this Fallout series. I mean, this could have just been something that falls to the wayside, and either something replaces it or not, but it really challenges that what-if, that idea of a nuclear holocaust and what happens with it. And I think overall, I would say, I know I'm going to get my rating in a bit, but it is. It's, it's a quintessential game that has established so many more outside of this and games that seek to kind of be the fallout, seek to be that exploratory 
shooter RPG. And with that, we wrap our coverage of Fallout 3 and we bring it to our ending point. And as always, Derek, let's start it off. Why did we choose this game and what do you think of it? Fallout 3 is a great mix blend, like you said, of the RPG elements and the first-person shooter elements. I did enjoy this game pretty well. I think that the amount of time and, and devotion that this kind of game took when when this game came out was not really something that I wanted to invest like that amount of time into. Mm-hmm. So I played this game a pretty solid amount. I remember kind of watching you play this game as well. Obviously, like how many games now are trying to blend RPG elements and first person shooters? It feels like all of them. It feels like now the cool thing to do is to try and give you like a little bit more of a superpower mm-hmm. when you're going through these games, or, you know, whether it be in the form of perks, whether it be in the form of specific abilities, something different, something that just adds another element to the gameplay rather than point click shoot, which I think was the first person shooter genre for a very, very long time. So I think that this game has sort of transcended into other forms of gameplay, like other genres within the gaming community. And I feel like Fallout 3 will stand the test of time. I've played, I think, just as much Fallout 4 as Fallout 3 Mm -hmm. and didn't find enough differences within those games, you know, to say, like, one is better than the other. And I think that that says a lot just based on the difference in time of when they were released and you know, the ability to have improvements within Fallout 4 that based on just time, experience, technology, maybe some things that just weren't available or ideas that didn't come up at the time of Fallout 3. Sure. I think that Fallout 3 still shares as much replay value as like a Fallout 4 would. And I can't speak on Fallout 76 because I, I didn't touch that one. It was another one of those games that once the reviews started coming out, I was like, eh, yeah, I think that's just going to be a skip for me. So. Um, if I had to give this a, a rating out of 10, it's probably like an eight for me. I think it was more like a nine sure. out of 10 for a lot of people at the time. Just an eight for me. Um, have a lot of fun with it. I prefer the fantasy genre just a little bit more myself compared to the apocalyptic genre. So understandable ratings, dumb, but understandable in the sentiment you had along with it. Uh, especially talking about, you know, I know that fallout before it was released was very much talked about as like oblivion with guns you know it it was given that it had the exact same feel had control wise the exact same the exact same feel the exact same amount of jump distance kind of that lofty kind of jump which works in those games like you want kind of that weird jump to get over some things to get that element of just like feeling like you can progress over weird boundaries (laughs) like shoulders level knees basically you get your knees all exactly It's it's like you had the moon boots on the whole time, and you're getting those nice those nice hops from it. It's like that Seinfeld uh, episode where they run through the airport. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly that, and and it brought so much to the genre of just RPGs in general. You know, it, it brought pretty much what we were seeing within every type of D and D, you know, Pathfinder, Cyberpunk esque tabletop game, but brought it to life, and I think did it really well. Again. You can't spell Bethesda without broken-ass game. 
And it definitely has a lot of that, but that's to be expected when you're building in 70 plus hours of a giant map where anything can interact with anything at one time, but it works so well. And the characters are all pretty unique and it spawned in what I think a lot of people crown as like the best fallout is in fallout new vegas and it brings a lot to it and not only that you have so many people who grew up with it like you and i did you know in our uh, teens i guess when we were playing it and then you have people who are playing it for the first time now and people who are going back and making these amazing mods for it the mods are what keep so much bethesda stuff alive and i just watched the other day amazing fallout new vegas randomizer where all of the people and weapons and all this stuff is randomized throughout it and it was so much fun and so goofy and chaotic like i'll probably go through and play that like i've played through all of them from start to finish and went through way too much so like that stuff revitalizes old games so much but back to the point here it's a game that everyone knows that people really have heavy criticism on because they want it to do well. I know 4 wasn't received as well. I love 4, but it wasn't received as well. And so 76, even less than that. So people are looking forward to Elder Scrolls 6 and Fallout 5, and we'll see what it brings. So if I had to give it a rating, I would give it not being irradiated as a plus because you don't want to be either a super mutant or a ghoul um, just because I don't want to be grabbed by the ghoulies. You know, I don't want to be in that uh, game. Grab a ghoul. I guess we'll grab a ghoul. Don't want to be that. Um, add in the number of times I shot the Fat Man launcher, uh, which is zero, because I am a conservator of ammo, apparently, and I just hoard everything. So I never use that. Multiply in how badass that ending was when your sweet Liberty robot breaks through. Oh, man. Oh. Optimus Prime, oh. but America. Oh, my gosh. Stops his prime America all around. Basically would have also been a sweet diesel truck. Uh, <laughs> out of never, if you did this, leave. I never detonated these beautiful people of Megaton. They're just trying to worship the weird bomb. And you could sell stuff there. And knowing hoarder me, who wants to go sell things, many shops as possible, baby. You stay right on that even line. You choose no sides. You sell to all. I think I blew it up. Out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> and so again, thank you all for tuning in. It was fun. Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall, Evan Barr, and Richard Scanlon. The intro and outro music for this episode was recorded and composed by our friend Evan Barr. Oh, those people are pretty cool. You know who else is cool? Our patrons. So over at our Patreon, we do have an amazing setup. If you haven't checked it already, we're running a D&D campaign, Minecraft server, gaming servers, so much extra bonus content to check out. And we want to thank those people today, starting with Tactics, Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Trace, Mega, Nick Hyman, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Climbing Spork, Mr. 1898, William Kroll, and Mr. Toot. So again, thank you all. You enable this podcast to continue and bring you some wacky stuff. And you get all that extra stuff just from the $5 tier up, right? Yep. $5 gets you a bunch of it, and each one up gets you a little bit more as well as some physical rewards. That's a lot of stuff. 
If you haven't yet, give us a follow on Instagram. We're also on Twitter. We'd love to see you in our Discord channel. It's free to join. Uh, Alex and I are over there hanging out. We're talking about new stuff, news in the gaming world. Uh, this week, very special because they just released finally the final character in the Super Smash Brothers Ultimate series, mm-hmm. talking about things like that live as they happen. So come hang out with us. We'd love to see you there. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. And be sure to check Derek and I out on Twitch. You can check me over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. As well as Derek at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. That is thebakerman247. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, drop us a review. We love to hear from you guys. The feedback helps us out a lot. And again, and again, and again, this has been our coverage of Fallout 3. What did you think of it? Are you part of the No Mutants Allowed crowd of Fallout 1, 2, Hardcore? Or did you have some fun with this property? Or did you not? What did you think of it? So let us know. All of our social channels are open. We'd love to hear from you. And that, and that, 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 that is our coverage of Fallout 3. And as always, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast.